Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Dr. Kate McCann on her mission to make lifestyle medicine more accessible in our healthcare system, moving us from sick care to true health care. Emily Pine on the healing power of writing and on one of her latest projects, which centres around the National Maternity Hospital and Kylie O'Donoghue on building a women's nutritional supplements brand, FemFuels. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it's interesting that I have three inspiring women on the show today as it's been a bit of a theme this week. On Wednesday, I took part in Shine Festival, organised by the Shona Project, which was created by a former guest on this show, Tammy Darcy. And she set it up to empower girls and young women to achieve their fullest potential. I also interviewed Tammy on my podcast, Changemakers, and she goes into great detail in that conversation about the personal story of her sister Shona and why she set up the organisation in her name. Thousands of secondary school going girls attended Shine Festival in Dublin and even more watched online to hear from so many inspiring women from the world of sport, tech, body positivity, sustainability, self-care and the energy in the room was just incredible. I chaired the social change panel and I was joined by Councillor Leah Whelan, who is Dublin's youngest ever candidate. She's with the Socialist Party. She got involved with the Repeal the Eighth campaigning and decided after that to go a step further. And now she puts forward motions for what she believes in and what she hears from the people she represents. She spoke to the girls about building up her confidence over time to put herself forward as a representative, but ultimately having a belief in herself and the opportunity to affect real and lasting change. Roshi Nikaila is a sixth year student now, but when she was in second year, her project for the BT Young Scientist Award looked at young people's perceptions of the HPV vaccine following the cervical check scandal and where they would be getting their information from. Her survey received over five and a half thousand replies and the information she collected led to her meeting Vicky Phelan herself and speaking at UCD on World Cancer Day. And Emer Neville, who is former president of the Second Level Students Union, she's in third level now. She's also an ambassador for the Shona Project and Plan International. And she spoke about the importance of representing the youth voice. And she also spoke about how among all of her achievements, one of the biggest was having the bravery and confidence to dye her hair pink and truly embrace herself for who she is and who she wants to be. And they all urge the girls to believe that their voices count and that they can make a difference. And it's a vibe that is right up my street. And I was thrilled to share the stage with these brilliant women. The team working for Shona Project were all open, friendly, positive and articulate. We had great chats backstage. I heard Dr. Karen Weeks speak about her solo row across the Atlantic and the importance of self-belief. It was just a great day and I absolutely loved it. I also slept out for Shine a Light Night for Focus Ireland, uh, which was 
also something amazing to be a part of. There are videos of my endeavours on my social media and on News Talks social media. I appreciate it's not exactly the same as those who are literally sleeping rough on the streets or experiencing other forms of homelessness. I volunteered for a couple of of soup runs over the years and I've witnessed the reality of people living on the streets firsthand. But the reality of not having a home to call your own, be that leading you to the streets, to couch surfing, to temporary and unsuitable accommodations such as hotels, hostels and centres, is soul destroying for a person and the latest figures make for pretty grim reading. The total number of people homeless is 10,805 and that's up 32% compared to the same time last year. Child homelessness is up by 47% compared to the same time last year. Family homelessness is up 56%. But as I said to the schoolgirls when on the stage at Shine Festival, there is a lot of tough stuff going on in the world at the moment and sometimes it gets overwhelming. But that doesn't mean that great work isn't happening alongside that and that real change isn't possible. Hope is such an important emotion for us to feel. And I felt such great feeling working with Focus Ireland on this project over the few weeks leading up to it and again on Friday night. If you feel you can support in any way, you can go to focusireland.ie or I have a link in the bio of my Instagram page. You can also email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, my next guest, Dr. Kate McCann, is a lifestyle medicine physician and creator of the social media project MDoc Health. She joins me in studio now, and this is a fight that you are fighting, Kate. (laughs) You're very passionate about lifestyle medicine and bringing it from something that's kind of out there, outside of medical practice, and marrying the two together. It's not an either or, it's both. Yeah, and I think I think that's probably the problem is that in Ireland we see it as outside of medical practice. This is a recognized medical specialty. It's a board certified medical specialty in the United States. It's a recognized medical specialty in the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, and there are doctors in Ireland who have sought this qualification and certification, including GPs and other consultant specialists, including uh, cardiologists, um, and the term lifestyle medicine has also been co-opted by um, alternative medicine practices. But we are talking about traditional mainstream medicine, quite honestly, the foundations of medicine that every doctor knows. We know that when, for example, you're at risk of high blood pressure, the first thing the doctor does suggest is we should probably talk about your diet or your exercise. But what lifestyle medicine does is just really focuses in on that on an evidence-based way. So where did it go wrong, do you think, if if I could oversimplify it like that? Mm-hmm. Often I hear discussed, I'm studying to be a health coach at the minute, yeah. and they talk a lot about how we ha- don't have a health care system. Mm-hmm. We have a sick care system where we wait until something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. We deal with the symptoms. We mm-hmm. patch that up and we send people back out. And that's not to say that doesn't come from a great place with mm-hmm. great qualification, great intent. Mm-hmm. But what about bringing it back to, to, to basics? How has it gone this way? Well, it, well, it's multifactorial. Um, you could really, there are literally books unpacking the subject. Um, and it's not just Ireland. We do need to look at that and say that Irish, this problem is a problem in all these other healthcare systems I just talked about. One of the factors, though, is really important is access to care. That is a major determinant of health. So we have a doctor shortage. 
that's not just Ireland, that's global as well. So when patients can't get into the doctor, they're not getting that excellent one-on-one qualified advice, and then they're left without that advice, or they're getting it from um, less qualified sources. And the other problem is, is when we have a doctor shortage, that the consultation time with doctors has dropped over the years. Years and years ago, a patient could, if they needed, get a long consultation going on to 20, 30 minutes. Years ago, it was dropped to around 15 minutes. And now um, we are getting down to some consultations getting pressured to be as little as 7 to 10 minutes. In that 7 to 10 minutes, you not only need to address the patient's concern, but at that little bit of health promotion... And, you know, HSC as well as other healthcare systems has a great promotion called MEC or Make Every Contact Count. But that's not enough to to really support or educate a patient through um, even a small lifestyle change. And I've even noticed myself, and possibly I just have an amazing GP, but like she has begun asking me questions about how am I sleeping? How am I taking time for myself? What way am I eating? Regardless of what I, I come to talk to her about. So I do believe that the conversation is changing. But again, that there isn't any accountability there because I'm not going to see her again unless I'm sick or I need a prescription for something. So does this need to be taken up by somebody else in the community? So there's a number of ways this could be addressed and it needs to be resourced. Um But, for example, if GPs had the time, the capacity, they could very well schedule you a follow-up. And we do want to do any kind of lifestyle uh, modifications in small bits. Um, Sometimes I have patients who come back from some um, executive health check and they've gotten a four-page printout of all the lifestyle changes they have to make. That doesn't work. Um, You need support and make it in small increments. And so, yes, if GPs had the time and the capacity or they were reimbursed uh, um, to support patients through this, it would change. You have to have enough doctors to do that. The alternative is to use what they're using in the US or the UK, and I'm really passionate about this. I've brought this into my practice, is to use the group visit model. So when you have a few patients who are on the same journey together, with their permission, they attend their follow-ups together and it's doctor-led. It's not a support group in that patients aren't just commiserating about the journey, but it's um, they're sharing the journey The doctors kind of uh, giving new information about where we're going to go next, but the patients are supporting each other and giving each other that that kind of lived experience as they go through it. Um, And that can be a great use of practice or surgery time. And it it was a a different setup, but I was interviewing somebody the other day who had gone through breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And when all her medical attention finished, Mm -hmm. one of the cancer support organisations contacted her and said, this is the second half of your treatment as we see it. We think you you should come online. It's a group. And she was thinking, oh God, I don't want to do this. This isn't going to be great. But the minute she heard other people talking and having a shared experience, there's real power in that. And having that backed with proper qualified advice on where to go from here in small incremental steps. I mean, that's gold. It really is. And there's really good evidence for it. So the other thing is, is that we're looking at physician shortage. We're looking at physician burnout. um, And it turns out that this group experience really, doctors feel better at the end of it. They're really connecting with their patients. And at the end of the day, we went into medicine because we like people. We like health. We like patients. We want them to stay healthy. And as example. Exactly right. We've moved to a sick care model. And that's not what doctors want to be doing either. We don't want to be putting out fires. So uh, small reforms like reimbursement 
um, even in hospital outpatient settings for chronic disease. These are things that we can look at going forward in healthcare reform. Um, it can make a huge difference um, to both patients and physicians. Because we had um, Andrew Dunn on the show. He put me in contact with your good self as well. And he was talking about training to become a physio and how originally himself and the, the medical people were all in the same room at the Royal College of Surgeons. And then all of a sudden, they just they just veer off. And it's like you step away from lifestyle factors and start looking at it in, in, in different ways. Well, I think it's one of those things. Uh, it's not that we stop looking at it. If you look at any medical textbook, first line treatment, um, for almost for so many diseases, if you think of like high blood pressure, for example, um, or pre-diabetes, the first step is changing lifestyle. And we do really that, that word just is so broad, though. But we'll we'll stay with it. But that is the first step. The problem is is that when you are in a surgery under a constricted time and a patient presents to you, they they don't want to hear. Um, you know, I'm going to use that phrase that I hate. And you know, eat less, move more hate that phrase. They don't want to hear that. They're kind of at the stage where, um, look, doc, I'm really busy. I can't make those changes. Yeah, yeah. I know I'm supposed to eat healthy. I just can't. And it's just pressure. Just, you know, hand over the prescription. Um, and it's both both patient and doctor factors in that dynamic. Um, a lot of it is a broken healthcare system that contributes to that, that, that broken dynamic. I love that you said that because that's actually one of the questions I have written down here about our weight-centric model of healthcare and that oversimplified term, eat less, move more. And it, it just makes me think that when it comes to health advice, like drinking more water, eating a balanced diet, everything in moderation, moving your body every day, everybody knows it really. So where is the the lag between knowing it and doing it? That is individual. Um, and I think a lot of, of a lot of doctors will resonate um, with this when I say you need the story. Every patient has a story, um, and this is what is lost when we don't have the time for patients. Um, because when uh, now I have the luxury, um, you know, one day, one or two days a week, I do private practice now, and I have that luxury, and I start with, "What's the story?" That is literally the first question I ask my patients. What's the story? And I give them that space. And sometimes I kind of want to jump in because they, they say something. I'm like, oh, yeah. And it, I have to physically hold myself back and just let them keep going. Because I, I always write down where they started. It is amazing that what telling factor it is even where the patient chooses to start in the story about why they're there that day. Um, and then we unpack it. And, you know, lifestyle medicine is very evidence-based. It's very structured. It's not... Um, so it, I do work through the story after we I let them I let them start and then I make sure we hit at least six aspects that can impact, um, you know, how we got there with their health. So what's your advice to people um, listening? Because if they're thinking, yeah, OK, you know, this sounds, this sounds great. You know, things are changing from the from the top. And that's mm -hmm. really ultimately what, 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 what you would like. Would you yeah. like it to be coming in with the training that lifestyle medicine is... It needs included in training for it, medical it is, professionals. It is becoming included in training. Absolutely. So um, Dr. Moran is a GP trainer with the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland. And yes, this is absolutely being integrated. It's also in medical schools at the moment. There are um, lifestyle medicine 
um, options, and they're all exposed lifestyle medicine. They're given additional options that they want to pursue it some more. Um, so yes, this is this is changing. And again, it's not something new to medicine. It's it's stuff we already always knew. It's something that's always part of medicine. It's just a a new focus on it and a new evidence based way to work with patients towards health goals. Yeah, because a lot of the chronic illness is based in lifestyle and can be. Mm-hmm improved or reversed in many cases. Yeah. So we don't like the word reversal as much. I know some people do. I like the word remission. Okay. 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 Especially if a lot of the diseases that we're talking about, like diabetes or obesity, and when we, like they're chronic diseases and we don't want to talk about reversing them, we want to talk about remission because quite honestly, we want to, we, that's kind of the word we want to we use. We can't time travel. No. Um, but we, we talk about the word remission, I think, is a very reasonable way to, to talk about it. Um, but yeah, and it is. I think people are very quick to polarize that um, if we go all one side of, oh, it's lifestyle factors, then then it, it kind of comes to the connotation of, oh, we're patient blaming, which is not at all. Then they flip the other side of, oh, it's all genetics. We can't do anything about it. And I don't like that either because we're robbing patients of empowerment, control, and informed decision making. So the truth is, is like most things in life, much more complicated and complex. And it's quite honestly in the middle. Genetics are a huge part. Um, what our decisions are also a part. And in the middle are things that are that that are very difficult to unpack, such as the socioeconomic de- determinants of health, that big term, meaning where you live, um, can, you know, how good the produce is in your local grocery store, um, whether or not you have access to cooking or kitchen or utensils, um, your education access that whether or not you can cook uh, makes a huge difference to your diet. Um, and so some of these things can be changed. Some of these things are a huge ask for people to change and just aren't able to. And other things like genetics, we can't change. But and but it all when we talk about how do patients get their health, that's why we need the story. Yeah. Amazing. I love that. And I love that people are being given the time to tell that story. Where can people find out more? Um, so just to learn more about lifestyle medicine, ISLM.ie website will give you a great overview. Um, and you also has um, has a list of a few uh, doctors. You're looking for a, a doctor or a GP or someone who knows a little bit about lifestyle medicine. Um, and then if you want to read more about, about what I do, um, I in addition to lifestyle medicine, for the last four years, I've been running a health promotion project on social media with the hashtag facts, not fears. I want patients to have access to qualified uh, medical information in an age of so much medical misinformation. Mm, so especially you, on social media. So where can people find media. that? So um, www.mdoc.ie, E-M-D-O-C.ie. And you can follow on social media at mdochealth. Dr. Kate McCann, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. So back in 2018, Kylie O'Donoghue had a burning desire to create a female-specific supplement company. In essence, the brand would be produced to meet the requirements of a female body. With the input of nutritionists, medical experts, researchers and strength and conditioning coaches, Femfuels hit the market in 2020. And Kylie joins me in studio now. Hello, Kylie. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. So just before the pandemic, you decided, I'm going to start my own business. (laughs) I know it's a little bit ironic, but I guess, you know what? It launched in October 2020. It had been a long time coming in terms of we'd been working on it since 2018. And I guess when everything's in front of you and it's ready to go, you need to bite the bullet and you need to 
just go for it. There's never probably the perfect time to launch a business. So we thought we might as well just do it now. And I suppose in October, we kind of realised people were actually still working out. And if if nothing else, probably more so. And we were never more health conscious than during all of that. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. I even think there's a lot of people in our community that might have never ran before or might have never picked up a dumbbell. And then all of a sudden they have all this time at home you know, they're not running and racing, they're not commuting and they're investing more time in their health and they're becoming more health conscious. So I think we really reached out to people that maybe never kind of embarked on that journey before, as well as those that might have been gymming the last however many years of their life. Sure, you couldn't get a, a dumbbell for love nor money. Sure, you couldn't. <laughs> they were sold out everywhere. <laughs> it was insane. Everyone was like wanting to set up a whole full gym yes. in their house. So yeah. yes, it probably, as you say, was a good time and there's no such thing as a perfect time. Exactly, yeah. And you set up the business with your brother, William. Yes. So how did that dynamic come about? Yeah, a lot of people, I suppose, you know, when people realise it's a brother and sister, they're like, oh my God, do you kill each other? Or what way does that work? And I guess... You know, it's something that both of us are extremely passionate about. William has played hurling all his life at both a club and county level. I've always been into like health, fitness, the gym. And it kind of just seemed like we both have strengths which are actually very different. If I asked William to plan a week and send an email, I'd be waiting a month for it to be done. Whereas if he asked me to give him certain figures, you know, he'd be waiting an age for me to do it. So I think both of our strong points actually you know, tie really well together. And it just seemed like the perfect match. I personally love having a business partner and someone to turn to where I can, you know, go for advice and say, you know, do you think we should do this? Do you think we should do that? I don't know if Enfuels would be where it is today if, you know, if I was by myself and having to make those decisions alone. And he knows you inside (laughs) out and you know him. So like you could any BS or worrying what he might think you can just go straight to knowing each other and, and getting on. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. And I think in the first year of being in business, there's a lot of like thawing issues. You know, there's some stuff that he might agree with that I agree with. But I think at the end of the day, you're still trying to run a business. So as much and all as I might not want to talk to him for an hour, I've no other option because you have to plan the next thing and you have to get back to business. Um, so don't get me wrong. There's definitely days where we're looking at each other being like, oh my God, get out of my face. But at the same time, it is a great partnership. And I, you know, there's no one else that I could imagine myself doing it with. So when you came to him with the idea or however it, mm-hmm. it, it came about, how come then it didn't become a nutritional supplement brand? How come it stayed with your original intent of being for women? Yeah, so I guess that's kind of where the whole brand was born in terms of when I go back a number of years to, let's just say, my late teens, when I was in the gym, like I said, William came from a hurling background. He was really well versed on nutrition, supplements, you know, what he should be doing to recover and get the most out of himself. Whereas I wasn't. So I would take the time out and invest in myself and go to the gym, but I wasn't really reaping the rewards or recovering how I should. And he would turn to me and say, you know, you should be taking protein, you should be doing this. And I think at that stage, it was very much, there was a lot of masculine brands out there. There was a lot of very macho, you know, like branding and everything. And there was no brand that I felt I could turn to and I could resonate with. You know, there was no brand that I looked at and was like, yeah, I'd happily hold that shaker in the gym or I'd happily take that product every day. And I guess that just kind of came down to there was nothing really on the market in Ireland that was tailored for females that, you know, like met the nutritional demands for females, did what we wanted it to do, had added benefits, vitamins, minerals, whatever that might be. And there was nothing that I felt I could proudly stand by and be like, you know, yeah, I'll take that and I'll rely on that to help me on my fitness journey. So I guess that's why we always wanted, you know, nothing ever swayed us away from it being female orientated because there was a gap there and female needed to be supported in the industry. And that's just the bottom line. And there are differences between men and women, particularly when it comes to our health. We had Dr. Hazel Wallace, the food medic on the show recently, and she was talking about that from a medical perspective point of view and yeah. sometimes as a woman you kind of feel no I mean we can do everything they can <laughs> and nobody is really saying that but you do yeah. need to 
to tailor certain things and, and at least have an awareness and an education around that. Yeah, 100%. And that's, you know, that's when we spoke with nutritionists and dietitians because to a certain extent, I knew maybe what I would like a product to do or what I would like it to offer. But you need to go back to the scientific side of it and you need to understand, you know, why maybe do females bloat after they take a whey product because, you know, our digestive system doesn't work as efficiently. And that's then when you'd look at adding a digestive enzyme to break down the lactose. So there, there's so much science behind it that I think sometimes is often overlooked. But we are completely different. You know, like you said, we're very much like, no, we can do anything we can take on the world and we can. But I think, you know, you like we do have specific needs. We do need extra protein. We do need, you know, added vitamins and minerals to a certain extent. And I think we're slowly becoming more and more conscious of that. So supplements or any kind of extras, be it a protein shake or a, a, a tablet, I think sometimes we're like, oh, do we really need this? Can we be getting all this from from our food? So do we really need all of this? Yeah, and like that's a good question because I think a lot of the time you can look at it in such a way that if you can get it from your food, so let's just say you can you know, hit your protein target day in, day out through food. That's fantastic. But a lot of people can't. And I think a lot of people don't realise that whether you're exercising or whether you're sitting at home on the couch or running after the kids, everyone has a protein target they should be reaching, you know, to make sure that our body is functioning the way that it should. So I guess the way of looking at it is, and I think especially now that we're out of lockdown, people are running racing, they're commuting, kids are back to school. It's just offers a convenient way of making sure that you're hitting those targets so that you're not neglecting it. You know, you're running out of the house in the morning, you're like, oh my God, I haven't had time for breakfast. It's fine, I'll just eat at lunch. Grab a protein shake. It takes two seconds. It literally has, you know, 100 calories, 25 grams of protein and you're nourishing your body the way that you need. So... Is it essential? Does everyone and should absolutely everyone be taking it? No, but it is there to help you reach your nutritional needs a lot more easier than having to stand by the cooker for 20 minutes and cook up a meal. Yeah, and I I don't know if people, I I think people may underestimate the knock-on effect of not hitting enough protein, particularly on body composition. Now, I'm all about body inclusivity and you don't have to look a certain way to be healthy or to be happy. Yeah. But they may be looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, my God, I need to join a gym and be going every single day or get my name down on the marathon. Whereas if they just up their protein, it might make a massive difference. Yeah. And I think there's such incremental changes that you can make. Like I said, you know, a few years ago when I was going to the gym, I was going to the gym, but maybe I wasn't seeing the results I wanted to see. And that was because I wasn't fully aware of what I should be hitting or what I should be consuming. And literally by adapting or changing one little thing, if it's literally, you know, you might keep eating the your three main meals, your two snacks, whatever it might be throughout the day. But if you add in a protein shake, you're ensuring that you're hitting your protein target, which means that ultimately you are going to be, you know, helping yourself build muscle, repair, recover, you know, renew new cells. And like it can only but have a positive impact. And this isn't just for gym bunnies then, this is for anybody. Yes, absolutely. Anybody, any age, you know, like, I guess when we look at even our customer profile, our actual biggest age range is from 25 to 44. So it's not even that, it's just, you know, young people who are going to the gym and who are, you know, able to go to the gym seven days a week and they want to recover. It's for anyone, like I said, whether you're in the gym, whether you're not in the gym, whether you're running after kids, whether you're sitting at a desk for the day, it's for everyone. That's the whole thing. I think a lot of people do associate protein with, oh, I have to be lifting weights. Or if I take protein, I'll get really bulky and I look like I lift weights. When in fact, like I said, everyone has that nutritional requirement, no matter what. What you're doing. So it is something that, you know, everyone can benefit from regardless of what your goal is. What about then the gym bunnies or the runners? Um, because I think a lot of the time we do run ourselves into the ground. We're doing all the hard stuff and we're forgetting about the rest, the recovery and putting back in what we're we're taking out. Are there supplements or additionals that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, 100%. And when, you know, when you're going to the gym and, you know, you can wake up 
it might be a certain time of the month, there might be something going on where you wake up the following morning and you're like, oh God, I'm a bit more achy than I was yesterday. And that's where you kind of need to think back and be like, okay, you know, did I hit all my requirements? Did I have my protein? You know, do I need an extra supplement that's going to help me recover? And there is supplements out there, like I said, you know, something like protein. It could be something like having a protein pancake mix in your cupboard. Instead of whipping up your pancakes yourself, you're getting the additional protein. Creatine is one of the most proven and tested supplements on the market that helps with recovery and growing muscle and it helps with muscle repair so you know whether you're in the gym whether you're running swimming cycling it doesn't matter what it is there are supplements there that are literally proven to benefit you in every way and make sure you're recovering so like I said it might be your protein it might be you know you're going out for a run and you don't have the energy boost that you kind of wish you had you need a pep in your step take a pre-workout look at it like it's your caffeine hit before you you go for you know whatever your exercise session is it's going to tune you on it's going to give you the boost you need and it's going to help you reap the rewards of your hard work. Let's talk about creatine then Mm. because there's so much misinformation about that. I mean, even as I'm sitting in front of you now, I have watched your Q&A sections on your um, social media. So I am a bit more informed. But up until now, what I have in my head is that it's for teenage boys. (laughs) They're ordering it on the internet. It's very dangerous and it makes you very aggressive. So (laughs) what is the truth? Okay, well, I completely, I understand where you're coming from because I even remember when I was in school, it would be like your friend's brother, like, you know, the mom found creatine in the cupboard and it's like, what are you doing? It's almost like it's an illegal substance. Creatine, I think, for so long was just shunned upon because I don't think like people were aware or people knew what its purpose was. It is a supplement, it's one of the main supplements that is proven if you take it every day to increase muscle mass, to help your recovery. There is definitely, you know, there's even things where females are like, oh, if I take that, I'll look really manly, I'll build loads of muscle. If it was that easy, I think everyone would be taking it and you'd be like (laughs) overloading it and everyone would want it. But I think, you know what, it comes back to the fact that trials have been done. They've studied different groups that have taken creatine that haven't taken creatine. It's definitely the most taboo product that people even will message us before they buy it and go, you know, oh, like, do I really need this? Will this benefit? I'm so sore, you know, trying to go to the gym. I don't know if I'm seeing the results I want. This product, like, I honestly would not be without it now. Four years ago, would I have gone near creatine? Not a hope, not if you paid me. Whereas now I think there's so much research, you know, we're even coming from a point of view of, yeah, we want to fuel our customers, but we also want to educate and empower them. You know, like we want them taking creatine because they will see the benefit from it. So it's kind of turning it on its head and, you know, showing the benefits that it can have rather than just being like, take creatine, it's great for you. you yeah. Know? And you're really trying to trying to show the scientific side of it and the outcomes that it can lead to. I think it gets mixed up or thrown in the same basket as steroids, yeah, which is definitely. a completely different <laughs> yeah. thing. It's just so funny how that's happened. And I think you need to be really careful where you're yeah. taking your health advice from. But like I said in the intro, you lean on experts before you bring anything to market. Yeah, 100%. And I know even, I know you mentioned um, Hazel Wallace there earlier. She did a Creatine 101 blog on her page because like that she was saying, you know, so many females were reaching out to her and saying, you know, should I be taking this? This not just for men. You know, what will happen? Is it like steroid based, as you said? And it's just not. And it's an amazing supplement that like that has been kind of thrown in the corner with with steroids and with other supplements that aren't really regarded as being good in nature, let's just say. Um, But it's a fantastic supplement and it's definitely one that people should be investing in. One more then. What are BCAs? (laughs) BCAs are also another controversial um, blend or supplement, you could say. It's your branched chain amino acids. So it basically consists of 
Certain amino acids that aren't produced naturally by the body. So we need to get them from external sources. They are typically gotten from meat sources. So BCAs are actually even more beneficial for people that follow a vegan diet because they're not getting in those branched chain amino acids from meat products and from your like normal, let's just say, meat driven um, protein sources. So it is a supplement that aids your recovery. It reduces your delayed onset muscle soreness and it helps you in the gym to, you know, in a shortest period of time to be able to recover and go again. Like I said, there is so many mixed opinions. Some people hate them. Some people love them. Some people are like, you know what, put a bit of my wadi in your water. It'll be the same thing. But I do think vegans specifically, it's extremely important for. And I personally take it every day in the gym. Obviously, it's our brand. I'm going to be using the products and I see benefit behind them. But that's also because, you know, I have educated myself on what they can do. And that's something as well that, like you were saying with the Q&As, you know, we're trying to educate as much people as possible. It's so controversial. It is an extremely beneficial um, supplement to be adding, especially like that if you are, you know, running often or in the gym often and you find you're sore, you're not recovering. It is another great one to add. It's not as scientifically proven as creatine because that is the most um, tested and proven one on the market but it is a fantastic supplement for many people you know you can look at all these pages on Instagram and you'll see 101 recipes and way to like you said you know increase your leafy greens increase your vegetables increase whatever it is but sometimes it's not always that easy you know it's not as easy as okay I need an extra 10-15 minutes I need to run to the shop then I need to come back and spend an extra 10 or 15 minutes preparing my veg or you know whatever it might be eating more fish if there's a more convenient way to supplement it and it's going to have a similar if not the same outcome on your body I don't you know it's it's there to be utilised and I think that's the whole thing with supplements like I said previously it's not that every single human being needs supplements but it's a convenient way to make sure that you're nourishing your body from within and getting the most out of yourself no matter you know whether it's a fitness journey whether you're just trying to improve your health whether you're looking after your immune system there's so many supplements out there and you know they're there for a reason So it's clear you're passionate about what you're doing um, and you're obviously loving it. Where do you see it going from here? Yeah, you know what? It's the kind of job that sometimes I probably don't see it as working for myself to a certain extent because you wake up every morning and you're going to work anyway, but I absolutely love it. Where do I see it going? You know, to date, we're obviously still an extremely young brand. We just turned two um, last weekend. But, you know, I would like to think that we are fueling, empowering, educating our customers and that we will continue to do that. You know, we want to be the one stop shop that whether, like I said, you're on a fitness journey or it's health and well-being that's at the forefront. You know, you come on to Fem Fuels and you can get everything that you need. And, you know, if, you know, females are chatting or they're talking about the gym or their recovery, I want Fem Fuels to be the brand that comes to mind. And I want Fem Fuels to be that safe haven community where it's like, you know what, I'm not sure if I need that. I'll pop on to Fem Fuels. I can ask them a question. You know, I'll go on to their blog and I'll educate myself. And I want to have that community of amazing females. You know, there's currently over 26,000 people on our Instagram and I want that to just keep growing and growing and keep educating and keep empowering females on their journey. Well, you are certainly an empowered female. Where can people find you? Yeah, so um, our Instagram handle is just femfuels. And then we are also on LinkedIn, Facebook, so you can reach out to us there. My own name is Kylie O'Donoghue. Feel free to shoot me any question, whether it's Instagram, um, LinkedIn, whatever it might be. But yeah. Yeah. And products are available up and down the country, aren't they? Yes, they are. So they're available online and we're also in um, stores nationwide, selected Super Value Centra, Mace and Nourish, which is in Dunn stores. Well, it's Fem Fuels with a Z, yes, of course, because that's cooler. <laughs> uh, continued success. Kylie O'Donoghue, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. Now, my next guest, Emily Pine, is Professor of Modern Drama at UCD. She has written four books, including two academic works. Her first collection of personal essays, Notes to Self, 
was hugely popular. It won the Butler Literary Award, the Sunday Independent Newcomer of the Year Award and Book of the Year 2018 at the Irish Book Awards. This year, she released her first novel, Ruth and Penn, and she has two plays currently featuring in the Dublin Theatre Festival. She is on the line now. Hello, Emily. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Before we get to the plays, can we start with your book, Notes to Self? I loved that book so much. So I was very excited to speak to you today. Is it still at the forefront of your mind or is that kind of like a project that has passed? Oh, I mean, it's the book of my life. So writing Notes to Self changed my life in lots of ways. And it's something that I continue living, but it is something, I mean, I think especially, you know, I wrote in, in that book about my own experience with my dad and his alcoholism. And I wrote about my experience of infertility and, you know, it's several years later. And so I'm at a different stage in my life and I'm happy to report that it's a happier stage as well. So that feels like a positive kind of progress. I mean, you shared so openly and honestly in that book, as you say, touching on tough times, but it was just written in the most beautiful way. And I I think in many ways that was the lesson that even through some horror, there can still be beauty. But it was literally your heart on the pages. There was a heart on the cover and your heart on the pages. And, you know, to a lesser extent, I've been asked more recently to do a bit of keynote speaking and putting yourself out there is a really big deal. So how did you feel coming up to publication date? Well, I was pretty nervous, but I I got to work with Tramp Press, the publisher who first uh, put the book out into the world. And they were an incredible duo. Um, Sarah uh, Davis-Goff and Lisa Cohn were incredible to work with because I felt they kept it private. So when I was revealing so many things about myself, it felt really safe. And then, you know, we were very careful going through the manuscript to make sure that I hadn't said anything, first of all, that was libelous, um, but also, you know, that I hadn't said anything that made me feel too exposed. I really wanted to be completely honest because I didn't see the point of kind of lifting the curtain and not really showing what was behind it. And and I think, you know yourself when you're reading something and and you know that someone is holding back and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to to really open up, Uh, but I also, you know, wanted to be able to protect my family. So that was the kind of negotiation for me. And aside from the critical acclaim that you received, you had so many messages and letters from people who read the book, were able to identify with some of what you were writing about. And that just really shows the power of shared experience. It really does. And those things that I had been scared of revealing, you know, like not being able to have children easily or at all in the end, or, you know, kind of family difficulties. They were the things that people got in touch with me about. I mean, just hundreds of letters from people just, and and strange. I mean, I explore some of the same topics in my recent novel, Ruth and Penn, um, the central character of which can't, she also can't have children. And again, people have been getting in touch and saying that in, in fiction this time around, you know, often we feel unable to talk about our own experiences publicly. So when we read about other people's, I think it gives us a way to access our own feelings. And I've just been bowled over by the generosity of everybody getting in touch with me and and sharing their experiences. It's been amazing. 
Because there's almost a swan mentality going on, isn't it? That there can be so much going on under the surface, but we all want to make out that we've got this down, as well as something like infertility being a private journey that perhaps people don't want to discuss every day. Or I don't think there's anybody out there going through any experience that wants that kind of well-intentioned pity smile everywhere they go. But it's almost like it gives people permission when someone is raw and open and honest, be it in a novel or a memoir, that it, it is OK. It is OK to tell the truth. I mean, I think so. There are so many reasons, as you say, that we don't. You know, silence can be a really safe, protective space to be until we're ready to be open. The problem is if you've been silent for a really long time, it becomes a kind of habit and it's hard then to break it out, which is why I think for me, writing fiction more recently has been a lovely way of, and and making the plays, which I know you want to talk about, has been a lovely way for exploring other kinds of truths and being honest about my feelings. The emotions all feel completely true even if the characters or the stories are fictionalized, it just, it's a way of of accessing it again. And I think giving people permission to have a full range of emotions is really important. It's something that we so often do, you know, two o'clock in the morning when we're awake and it's dark and we're running through things in our mind. And it's just, it's really nice to have different outlets for that. So with the the recent novel, Ruth and Penn, and I know you've written a couple of academic books and as we're going to get into the plays now, never say never, perhaps, but do you think you're done with direct personal sharing or could there be a an update on, on life lessons right now? A, a second. I mean, I would really like to write more. I just it has really struck me. Um, one of the things that people said when I was first publishing Notes to Self is that it, it's such a different book from writing academically. And I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's so completely different. And then I looked at, at my life and, and I teach in UCD and I teach drama and, and I love that job. And I realized that I had been teaching for years plays in which you know, which feature characters who have experienced sexual violence. And in Notes to Self, I wrote about my own experience for the first time. So I had been trying to tell that story or, you know, thinking through that story in lots of different ways before I wrote Notes to Self. So the answer to the question is I would really like to write more about myself, but maybe also writing about being a teacher, writing about that kind of work, writing, not just writing about trauma, but writing about, you know, okay, how do we make sense of our lives? How do we, how do we deal with the aftermath? How do we move on? So interesting though, isn't it, that the, the story or the truth was just bubbling under the surface. Of course it was, it was your life experience, but you kept trying to tell that story. And in many ways, you are perhaps one of the luckier ones that has an outlet, that has this gift of, of writing as a way to release it. But it was just still showing up, as you say, in some of the plays you were suggesting were covered by your students. Yeah, and I think that every time somebody writes an essay or, you know, proposes a topic for a dissertation, I think, you know, we write about things that are important to us and things that are close to us. And those motivations are not just intellectual, they're also emotional, you know, and that's really important to pay attention to, certainly, as I say, in my road as a, as a teacher. Uh, and I think that, 
you know, even though not everybody is mad enough to publish a memoir, I think everybody has access to writing or, you know, it might not be writing something down on a page. Like I know people who record a kind of audio memoir and it's a really, I mean, it's a step that I think even if nobody is thinking about publication, it's a step I would suggest to lots of people who are going through something. I think the process of writing, of coming up with a story about your own life can be really freeing. Yeah, and it comes up time and time again, particularly in in wellness discussions now, the idea of journaling or Julia Cameron with The Artist's Way, getting up and doing the morning pages, three pages of freehand to clear the clutter of your mind and all kinds of ideas can come from it. So you're right, it doesn't have to be in a form that is ready for publication. It can be all kinds of words and notes, but there, there is something very freeing in that. Um, let's talk a bit about Hollow Street then. It, it featured in Notes to Self. Um, as you said, you discussed your experience of infertility and pregnancy loss and the stillbirth of your sister's daughter, Elena, which all took place at Hollow Street. And we usually focus on the joy that emanates from uh, that building. And of course, it's to be celebrated. But the other side really does need to be acknowledged too. And I was really taken aback by the reading of the book in that. Is that what led to you being offered the position of writer in residence at Hollis Street? I remember reading that in a in a newspaper article and I, I, I wondered how that had come about and what that role was to be before the pandemic changed everything. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, I think I was, I basically had a meeting with uh, Shane Higgins, who is master of Hollis Street, and he was new into the role. He took over from uh, Dr. Rona Mahoney and uh, he was, he had read uh, Notes to Self and had really liked it. And one of the things I really admire about him is how open he is to other people's perspectives and experiences of the hospital. And he was really intrigued, I think very brave as well to invite a writer in because writers are slightly dangerous um, people because you can't control what they do and but he was he he I we kind of built up a rapport and had these conversations about women's health and women's reproductive health in particular and how underserved and under-resourced it is often and how difficult a lot of women and a lot of men as well a lot of people find moving through maternity and and Hollow Street doesn't just provide maternity services it provides a lot of gynecological services and other kind of health um, services to and um, people with female reproductive systems and I think just that story he he knew that and that everybody I met at the hospital were really keen to have more stories be told and to empower, you know, both staff and patients that way. I mean, I was, I'm only one person. So I went into the hospital with a very kind of large agenda and effectively what I was finding and meeting were people who are working and who are experiencing, um, Hollis Street in all sorts of different ways. And I just started, I just started listening basically um, to it. It was, it was, and it was completely overwhelming the number of different experiences people have in that really quite small building. Yeah. And as you say, not just the potential parents or women going through it, the, the patients, it's also the staff and the people that make it there are so many stories to tell and you have gathered them all together and put them into your play, All Hardest of Women. And it's taking place in Hollow Street itself. So it's a really special project. What should people expect going to see it? 
It's really extraordinary, first of all, that the hospital have allowed us in. And again, I think there's a huge generosity um, there in their attitude towards myself. And I mean, the project is really based on my research, but and also responding to, I don't know if you know the chapter in Ulysses that Joyce sets in Hollis Street. And the director of the project is Louise Lowe, and she is a theatre company called Anu Productions. And Louise with Anu have gone in, have taken my research and, and their own uh, independent research and have gone into the hospital and thought about it as a space and specifically set in, I mean, and, and I want to say here now as well that it's it people going to the play, it's, 9pm and 10.15pm after all of the business in that part of the hospital is finished. So it doesn't in any way interfere with the working of the hospital at all uh, or with patients or staff at all. And I think that's important to say. Um, the But the, the people going in to see the play, I mean, it's not a, a traditional play. They go in and in very small um, audience groups and will hear and encounter and listen to stories of characters who move through um, the hospital from people who are working there to people who are patients or people who are waiting for patients. And one of the most extraordinary of the storylines belongs to a male character who's waiting for his wife. And that was important to me. And I really admire what Louise has done with that because so many women's voices get lost in talking about uh, you know, maternity services, but so many men's voices get lost as well. And I think paternity is something we don't really prioritize enough in discussions around, you know, having babies, basically. Yeah. And once again, it's a topic that you're not afraid to talk about. And from that, people will be given more freedom. As you say, All Hardest of Women is part of the Ulysses 2.2 programme. And for more, you can go to Ulysses 22.ie. Emily Pine, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much. It was so great to meet you. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aidan McKelvey and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.